Good morning. It's a privilege and blessing to be here. I don't take it for granted. I could never repay this school back for what God has um, deposited in me. So any contribution back to the work of the Master's College is a great joy and privilege of mine that I don't deserve. So I thank God for that. Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. I'm going to read the whole chapter of the Christian Standard Bible. Translation shouldn't be too different from yours. And then I'll pray, and then we will meditate on it together. Hear then the word of God from 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will for the promise of life in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my dearly loved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience as my ancestors did when I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. Remembering your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. Clearly recalling your sincere faith, that first lived in your grandmother Lois, then in your mother Eunice, and that I am convinced is in you also. Therefore I remind you to keep ablaze the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fearfulness, but one of power, love, and sound judgment. So don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner, Instead, share in suffering for the gospel relying on the power of God. He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose, which was given to his purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. This has now been made evident through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. For this gospel, I was appointed a herald, apostle, and teacher, and that is why I suffer these things. But I am not ashamed, because I know the one I have believed in and am persuaded that he is able to guard what has been entrusted to me until that day. Hold on to the pattern of sound teaching that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who lives in us that good thing entrusted to you. This you know, all those in Asia have turned away from me, including Phagellus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he diligently searched for me and found me. May the Lord grant that he obtain mercy from him on that day. And you know very well how much he ministered at Ephesus. This is the word of the Lord. Father in heaven, it is an act of worship altogether to just read your word aloud. And we worship you because you are the God who has revealed yourself to us in Christ Jesus. We thank you that you have saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to your own purpose and grace. 
We thank you that Christ has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. We thank you that when we were running away from you, you stopped us, you called us, you opened our eyes to see the glory of Christ. And now you're going to be sending 500 students out, plus all of us for the rest of our lives, you're sending us to make this gospel known so that others might come to hear and believe and be saved. So Father, we pray now for your Holy Spirit's power that he would transform our hearts and conform our minds to your will and to your word. Give us a heart for your glory, a heart for the lost, and a boldness that does not shrink back from suffering and shame and opposition. For this, we need your spirit's power, and we need your word to dwell in us richly, so do it now, we pray, because apart from you, we can do nothing. In Jesus' name, amen. God has entrusted the gospel to you and to us, and he's entrusted the gospel ministry to us. The gospel was entrusted to you when someone shared the gospel with you and you came to Christ. And the gospel ministry was also entrusted to you at that same moment. And so we are to commit what, we, what has been committed to us to others. If you read 2 Timothy 2, 2, Paul says you take what has been entrusted to you, you give it to other faithful men who will give it to other men also. This is what the Great Commission is of making disciples. It's passing on the gospel from or receiving it from someone else, taking the baton and passing it on and passing it on and passing it on until you die and until Christ comes again and we celebrate forever all the work that he has done through us and through those we have invested in. God will be sending you out from this college soon enough. Not just this Wednesday, but you'll graduate and you'll leave this place and it goes quicker than you might realize, especially if you're a first year student. And you will either be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ or you will be uh, making disciples who make disciples or you will be a professing Christian who chooses the easier, convenient, people-pleasing path. So there's a fork in the, in the road this morning. We find ourselves at a crossroad. I want you to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ who makes disciples with boldness. And Paul had that same desire for Timothy. This is Paul's last letter to Timothy before he dies. This is the last letter we have of the Apostle Paul in Holy Scripture. And Paul knows his time is short. The global mission is going to continue past Paul's lifetime, he realizes. And so he wants to encourage Timothy to go on without Paul. And now God wants to encourage us to continue with the gospel we've been given. So here's the main point. Look at verse 8. The main command, I think, of the whole chapter, maybe the book, is in verse 8. So don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me as prisoner. Instead, share in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God. Paul is telling Timothy, don't shrink in shame, but share in the pain of gospel ministry. And that's the point that I want to drive home and pray. I've been praying, our church has been praying, that God would press this on your hearts. Don't shrink in shame, but share the pain of gospel ministry. To shrink in shame is to be embarrassed to the point of avoiding any situation that would bring about opposition. We want to avoid awkwardness. 
By the very definition, awkwardness is awkward. It, it, it doesn't feel good. It's uncomfortable, right? So we don't want awkward situations. We don't want awkward conversations. We like to stay in our comfort zone. And when we desire that too much, to an idolatrous level, we will shrink back in shame and not share the gospel with non-Christians or share the gospel even with Christians and then apply it to them. Jesus said in Mark 8, 38, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, these are heavy words of Jesus, some of the scariest he said, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So if you're ashamed of Jesus and his words, judgment day, Jesus will be what? Ashamed of us, ashamed of you, ashamed of me. So don't shrink in shame, but share in the pain of gospel ministry. In that same chapter of Mark 8, Jesus says this right before that. Summoning the crowd with his disciples, he said to them, Mark 8, 34, if anyone wants to be my follower, follower, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. So you got to lose your life. You have to take up your cross. You have to die to yourself. You have to share in the pain. And that's what Peter says in 1 Peter 4, verse 13. He says, instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of the Messiah. That's the invitation this morning. That's the call, to share in the sufferings of the Messiah. So that you may also rejoice with great joy at the revelation of his glory. There is joy. There is reward. There is a crown. But there's a cross first. It's the cross before the crown. So share in the sufferings of the Messiah. In verse 14 of 1 Peter 4, Peter says, If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. So suffer for the name of Christ. Be ridiculed for the name of Christ. Now this is a tough command and call. Especially tough for me as a parent. I was just doing the math today and I realized that my second child is closer to your age than I am, which is a scary thought. This is a tough command though as a parent. My wife is due to give birth to our fifth child next month. And having a child is a scary thing for a lot of reasons. One of them for me is the curse of this world, the pain of life, and the sorrow that awaits him or her. And you will realize this if the Lord blesses you with the gift of marriage and the gift of children. And if he stops blessing you with the gift of singleness, I must say that that's a gift as well. Okay, just in case you feel deprived, that is a gift. It is a gift from the Lord. But if God gives you the gift of marriage and children, you're going to want to control the world. You're going to see your child and you're going to wish you can control everything around them so that they never, ever feel pain so that they never get hurt and because you can't control the world you're going to respond with plan b worry and panic and anxiety because you can't control the world around which your, your child will live and so songs like this comfort my soul because he lives you know that hymn because he lives there's a verse there that says how sweet to hold a newborn baby and feel the pride and joy he, he gives but greater still the calm assurance 
this child can face uncertain days because he lives. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. And life is worth the living just because he lives. So we can go forward in the pain of gospel ministry because Jesus lives. The International Mission Board, which is our mission agency for the Southern Baptist Convention, they had a prayer request online this past August, and it said this. Please pray for the family and friends of a South Asian man, and they didn't want to specify what country because of security reasons. Please pray for the family and friends of a South Asian man who was martyred this month, this is just a few months ago, who was martyred this month for his faith, leaving behind a wife and three children. Pray and ask that many will hear about his Lord and how he offers eternal hope and peace. Here's a man martyred for Christ, leaving behind his wife and three children. I wonder if this widow and now single mom could sing the song because he lives. I'm not sure if they have a baby. I don't know how old their children are. But can she sing that this child can face uncertain days because he lives? Can this child really share in the pain of gospel ministry? God is sovereign, right? And his dad is gone. The child's dad is gone. Growing up in a single parent home. Because you live, Lord, I can share in the pain of gospel ministry. Can she sing that song? God lives. It's worth it. It's worth it that I lost my husband. It's worth it that I'm going to raise three kids on my own. It is worth it. This woman knows pain. We should be praying for her. Her children are now growing up, growing up without their dad because of the gospel. Paul is here writing from jail because of the gospel. He's writing to Timothy, who's going to be suffering because of the gospel. And so he tells Timothy, don't shrink in shame, but share in the pain of gospel ministry. Okay, so here's the question. How do we do it? This is a big calling. This is a heavy calling. It's a serious calling. How do we do it? I think in this chapter, Paul gives us three keys in how to share in the pain of gospel ministry and how not to shrink in shame. If we, get, if we have time for the third point, we'll, we'll get to it. If not, that's okay. The first two are really more of the emphasis for this morning. But three keys here in sharing in the pain of gospel ministry and not shrinking in shame. Number one, Shrink, don't shrink in shame, but share in the pain of gospel ministry by keeping the gift of God in you ablaze. Keeping ablaze the gift of God. You see that in verse 7? This is in verses 3 through 7, but look at verse 7 with me. Or verse 6, I'm sorry. Therefore I remind you, verse 6, to keep ablaze the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of my hands. There's the command, or there's a command. Keep ablaze the gift of God that is in you. What is the gift? Some people say we don't know what the gift is because Paul doesn't name it here. Others say it's the Holy Spirit mentioned in verse 7. I think that's close. I think the gift is, um, well, not, I don't think it's the Holy Spirit, but look at verse 7. For God has not given us a spirit of fearfulness, but one of power, love, and sound judgment. I think that spirit is not the Holy Spirit, but it's the spirit that God gives you. In Ezekiel 36, the new covenant is promised. God says, I'll take out your heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh, right? I'll give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit within you and then I will give you my Holy Spirit and he'll cause you to walk in my ways. But God gives us a new spirit and it's a spirit of power, love and sound judgment or self-control and I think that's the gift that God has given 
Timothy. It's the gift of the Spirit to walk in God's ways, which means gospel ministry. When you receive the gospel, you receive the Spirit of God and you receive a new spirit. And when you receive that, you receive a new ministry, the gospel ministry. And that's the gift, that your life will not be wasted on the things of this world and the goals and ambitions of this world, but that your life will be spent and invested for the spread of the gospel. I think 1 Timothy 4.14 confirms this. When, when Paul writes, don't neglect the gift of God that is in you, Timothy. It was given on you through prophecy with the laying on of hands by the council of elders. So Timothy was given the gift of gospel ministry. And you might be saying, PJ, I'm not a pastor. I'm not an apostle. I'm not a church leader. I'm just a Christian. Does that mean, do you have, a, do you have the gift of gospel ministry? Do you, have the, do you have any spiritual gifts? Has the Holy Spirit given you spiritual gifts to build up the body of Christ? He has, right? 1 Corinthians 12. In 1 Corinthians 10, 31, it says, whether you eat or drink, do what? Everything or all things to the glory of God. And then if you read on in that passage, Paul says, that's why I don't, I don't eat, or in the context, I don't eat certain food sacrificed to idols because I am trying to save not only the lost, not only the Jews and the Greeks, but even the weaker brothers. I do everything for the salvation of the many. And then he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And he's writing not to pastors, not to Timothy, to the church at Corinth. In other words, all Christians, all Christians are called to do everything for the final salvation of people. Imitate Paul as he imitates Christ. In other words, you've been given a gospel ministry. What does Ephesians 4 say? God has given pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Who's doing the ministry? The saints. Are you a saint? Are you a Christian? Then you have the work of the ministry, and it's the jobs of pastors and elders to equip you for your ministry. So that's the ministry. And what is this ministry? What is Christian ministry? Here's what Tony Payne and Colin Marshall define Christian ministry as in the book Trellis and the Vine. Christian ministry is really not very complicated. It's simply making and nurturing genuine followers of the Lord Jesus Christ through prayerful, spirit-backed proclamation of the word of God. It's disciple-making. So do you know what your ministry is? Whether you're a business major, or a home ec major, or a math major, nursing, I don't know if nursing's here yet, but nursing major eventually, or a Bible major, your ministry is to press the word of God onto people, into Christians and non-Christians, to press the gospel on them backed by the spirit of the power, or the power of the Holy Spirit. And so what's the, what's the command in verse 6 again? I remind you to do what? What does Paul want Timothy to do in verse 6? To what? Somebody? Keep ablaze, keep on fire the gift of God. So here he's saying, he has a picture of a fire. You either, the fire either goes out or it stays burning, right? You feed the fire. You use your gospel ministry or you lose it. The picture is the flame getting smaller and smaller as you get discouraged in your gospel ministry. And Paul's saying, don't let the fire go out. I'm about to die, Timothy. You're going to be on your own without your mentor, but don't let the fire go out. You have a gospel ministry. Keep it on fire. Keep it ablaze. Keep using it by the strength that God supplies for you. This is a call to habitual engagement. If you don't use it regularly, just like if you don't use your muscles regularly, your muscles what? Atrophy, right? 
And if you don't use the grace of God in sharing the gospel with Christians and non-Christians, then your strength of gospelizing, of sharing the gospel with both, will weaken. So understand this. When I say habitual engagement, I'm saying that it's not like you're playing a video game, like a, a war video game, Call of Duty or something like that, where you're, you're pretending you're in war, and then when you're done playing the game, you turn off the video game, and then you can go do your homework. No, this is not gospel warfare. Gospelizing ministry is not a game you can turn off and turn on. Oh, now it's time to be living for the gospel. Now it's time for me to do my homework. Now it's time to eat. Now it's time to go back to gospel ministry. No, all of your life is warfare, like a soldier who's deployed, and even if they eat, they're still in war. That's how our lives are. You don't turn it off and on. It's not like babysitting. When you babysit, you get to, visit, you get to take care of a child, you babysit for a few hours, parents come back home, they thank you, and you move out, or you move on, right? You don't have to take care of the baby anymore. That's not what gospel ministry is like. It's more like being the parent where you never get the vacation. You get maybe a relief for two hours to go on a date night when the babysitter comes, but you're the regular caretaker for the child. That's what gospel ministry is like. It's not like, just like our brother Barry said, it's not just outreach week. It's every week is outreach, right? All of life is gospel ministry. It's not something you, it's not a switch you flip on and off. You are a minister of the gospel. That is your identity. You are a servant of Christ. You're not an employee who clocks out. You're someone, you are a gospel minister. You are the temple. The Holy Spirit lives in you. You are a slave of Christ. He is your Lord. You are a child of God. He is your father. And he's calling you to call others into the family to be adopted by Jesus Christ. That's who you are. And notice I've been saying you're not only applying the gospel to non-Christians, but you're applying it to who? To Christians. That's why I use the word gospelizing. I could use the word evangelizing. But when we think of evangelizing, we're thinking only non-Christians. But Paul in Romans 1 makes very clear you don't only evangelize non-Christians, you also evangelize Christians, namely you gospelize them. And, and the reason I'm telling you to do both is this. If you never gospelize another student on this campus you're rarely going to gospelize people outside this campus. The easy, is it easier to gospelize Christians or non-Christians for most people? Christians, why? Because they already believe in the gospel. So if you make it your habit of life on campus to apply and preach the gospel and apply the gospel to each other in the dorm room when you see your roommate maybe cheating and copying homework from somebody else and then you apply the gospel to them, when you do that regularly, you're, you're strengthening your muscles to gospelize even non-Christians. Four reasons why he tells us to keep the gift ablaze. I'll just say these very quickly. One is because we have deep gospel friendships. Paul and Timothy are deep friends, verses 3 and 4. In verse 5, who handed the gospel down to Timothy? Who handed the gospel down to Timothy in verse 5? The grandma and the mom, right? Lois and Eunice. The second reason why you should keep the gift ablaze is because for a lot of you, you have a rich heritage, your parents and grandparents were Christian, for many of you. And they've handed the gospel to you. You are now to keep that gift ablaze to hand it to the next generation, not only your kids, but those around you. You won't gospelize your kids very well if you're not gospelizing regularly as a lifestyle, by the way. So God has given you this gift. You are not to squander it. He's given you his Holy Spirit, a spirit of, not of fearfulness. Look at verse 7. It's not a spirit of fearfulness, but a spirit of what? Power. What's that second word? The spirit of what? After power. What is it? Love. 
Love your neighbor as you love yourself. If a spirit of love dominates you and you see a non-Christian neighbor and you're overwhelmed, not with fearfulness, but with a spirit of love, what are you going to do to your neighbor? You're going to engage them with gospel intentionality. That doesn't mean you'll witness to every person you see, but you're going to have a heart to want to witness, right? You're going to look for opportunities. You're praying for an open door. You're going to be sensitive to how the conversation might turn so that you can share the gospel. That's what you're going to do if you have a spirit of love, but if you're dominated by a spirit of fear, you're not caring about their soul. You're caring about what they think about you. And when you care about what they think about you, you're paralyzed from gospelizing. And it's not a spirit of power, love, and sound judgment. It's a spirit of fearfulness, and therefore you would shrink in shame. So the first way you're going to not shrink in shame but share in the pain of gospel ministry is by keeping the gift of God ablaze. That's number one. Number two, second way. Don't shrink in shame but share in the pain of gospel ministry by remembering God's gifts. This is verses 8 through 12. The first part was verses 3 through 7. Verses 8 through 12 now by remembering God's gifts. So we have the main command in verse 8, don't be ashamed about the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Instead, share in suffering for the gospel. Now, Paul gives us two reasons here why we should share in the gospel. Look at verse 8 again. What's the first word in verse 8? Small word there. What is it? Therefore or so. You see that in verse 8? That means that verse 7 is a reason for verse 8. Why should you not shrink in shame but share in the pain? Because God has given you his Holy Spirit and the gift. I just talked about that, so we don't need to meditate on that any further. But let's go to the next one. Look at verses 9 and 10. The second reason why you're going to share in suffering. Because he has saved you. Look at verses 9 and 10. Here's the gospel. Here's good news. God saved us. He has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Verse 9. Who has God saved us from? Himself. That's right. God doesn't save us from Satan ultimately, though he does. He doesn't save you from yourself ultimately, though he does. God saves you from him, himself. God saves you from his wrath. So he has saved you and called you with a holy calling. So here's the holy calling of gospel ministry. And he doesn't call us according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. God saves you, not by your works, but by his grace. Is that good news or bad news? That's good news, right? Think about our lives. I'm reading through the book of Lamentations right now in my devotions. It's a sad book. It's called Lamentations. When you read chapter 2 and you, you just read about the judgment of God on the people of God because they could not keep the law covenant. If we were to be saved according to our works, we would be just like the Jews that were exiled in Jerusalem. The wages of sin is what? Death. But the gift of God is eternal life. So what kind of death is it if it's eternal life? What kind of death is it? Eternal death or what Revelation calls the second death in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. We deserve hell. And if we were trying to save ourselves according to our works, who would stand? None of us would stand, right? We all deserve God's wrath. But the good news is that we are saved not according to our works, but according to his purpose and his 
grace which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. This is good news to our neighbors because everyone is trying to save themselves by their works. When you talk to a non-Christian and you say to them, what do you think the main idea of Christianity is? Or what do you think it means to be a Christian? How many non-Christian friends do you already have in your family and neighbors and, and friends you have from high school and others you keep in touch with? How many of your friends will say, when you say, what is, what's the essence of Christianity? They will say, Christ died for sinners and they're saved by grace through faith and not by their works. How many of your friends would say that? Not many, right? What do they think Christianity is? Don't sin. Keep the rules. Do good works. Now, are we to do good works? Yes, Ephesians 2.10. We're creating Christ Jesus for good works. But they think that's what Christianity is. We have the privilege of telling them, I got good news for you. You can't earn it. It's a gift. God saved me according to his grace and not according to my works. And you can be saved too by his grace. If you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, I know this is the Master's College and it's very likely, but in a crowd this size, it's, it is actually likely that there could be not a non-Christian here. This is good news for you this morning, that God will forgive you of all of your sins and give you his Holy Spirit because Christ died for you and rose for you and it's by his grace and not by your works. Now, when did God give us this gift of salvation according to verse nine? Before what? The very end of verse nine. Before what? Before time began, God chose you and he chose to save you before he said, let there be light, before dinosaurs, before he made angels, whenever that was, before he made time, he gave you salvation. He purposed to give you salvation. Why did God create the world? Because he was needy? Because God lacked things? No. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were celebrating their joy and love with each other, for each other, for all eternity. And in their joy, what do you do when you're so happy? You have to what? You have to share it, right? That's why you share links on YouTube and on Facebook, because you have to share the joy. When you see something really funny, you have to text somebody, send the link. Did you watch it yet? Did you watch it? Why didn't you watch it yet? I want you to watch it. It's funny. You want to share your joy. Here is God rejoicing in God, and he shares his joy by creating a whole world to save sinners, to join the Trinitarian celebration forever and ever and ever. And God purposed to invite you and to save you and to capture you into this Trinitarian party. From all eternity, he's called you and he wanted to save you. And then he gives you a ministry of the gospel. And we would shrink in shame. We would be embarrassed in front of somebody, in front of our neighbor, when God from all eternity has purposed to join the Trinitarian party and now we're with our neighbor and we're scared of what they think? God has given us salvation purposed in eternity. And we get a blip of time on the timeline of God's creation to share the pain of gospel ministry in gospelizing people. That's what God's calling us to do. Verse 10, Christ did it through dying on the cross for our sins. Paul gives us his own life as an example. Look at verses 11 and 12. Here's an example of Paul. Not shrinking in shame, but sharing in the pain of gospel ministry. Look at verse 11. Paul says, for this gospel I was appointed a herald, apostle, and teacher. So Paul was appointed to this ministry in verse 12, and that is why I suffer these things. 
Paul suffers these things because it was appointed for him. In other words, Paul was given the gift of salvation and the gift of ministry, and that's why he suffers. Listen, listen to, listen to ver, uh, Acts chapter 20, verse 22. Just listen as I read it. Paul's writing to, or he's talking to the elders at Ephesus, and he says this. And now I am on my way to Jerusalem, bound in my spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there, except that in town after town, the Holy Spirit testifies to me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. But I count my life of no value to myself. I die to myself so that I may finish the course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. What was the ministry Paul was given? The ministry of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. And you say, PJ, you got the wrong guys here. We're not apostles. Paul was called to suffer, not me. Wrong. That's wrong. Second Timothy is for us. If you're a Christian, you have a course of ministry, you were appointed to testify of the gospel of God's grace, and you are called to suffer in it. You are called to share in the opposition of it. Jesus said, if the world hated me, they will also, what? Hate you. If the world doesn't ever oppose you, you have to ask yourself, looking in the mirror, whose side am I on? Right? If I never get opposition from anyone who's enjoying their sin, and they never oppose me in conversation or in relationship, if I'm never opposed by anyone who's on that side, whose side am I on? When God called you and saved you, he called you to represent him, which means people will get saved through you. People will grow in grace through you. People will love Jesus more as you testify to the gospel of God's grace. They will be drawn. Some will. But others will what? Reject gospel. They will oppose Christ. And if you're representing him right there in that conversation, they will oppose you too. This is your course. This was given to you. Isn't that amazing? Your whole life is planned. And you know that. Theologically. You're here at the Master's College. You're preparing for the rest of your life, right? You're preparing to finish your course. So you get your degree, and you go on because you have life goals to finish your course. And God is saying, newsflash here, God is saying, the course of your life is to share in the pain of gospel ministry and not shrink back in shame in whatever vocation you have in your life. And this week is an exercise to a lifetime of gospel ministry. Whether you're one of the 500 who are going to churches, or whether you're one of the other 500 or so who are who God's sending elsewhere individually. This is your call. Well, it looks like I got a few minutes, so I will get to the third one. So we don't shrink in shame, but share in the pain of gospel ministry. First of all, we do that by keeping the gift ablaze. Secondly, we do it by remembering God's gift, namely the gift of salvation, the gift of ministry, the gift of this course of our life. You have to remember that. God has saved you and he's given you his power for gospel ministry. So we rely on that power. Third reason, though, or third way, the third way to not shrink in shame but share the pain is by grabbing and guarding the gospel, grabbing and guarding the word of truth. Look at verse 13. Verse 13 says, hold on, that's grabbing, grab on to the pattern of sound teaching that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So you hold on to true doctrine, right doctrine, and you hold on to this doctrine, this pattern of sound teaching in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. 
So are we to be loving or are we to be sound in our teaching? Which one? Both. This hits home for me. In my Los Angeles Southern Baptist Association, we just ex excluded or removed from our association a pastor who's near Biola who was saying that homosexuality is uh, not sinful if it's monogamous. It's a popular view that's coming along with those who are trying to keep the Bible and that view together. And we have grace for everyone. But um, here's what I told him when I met with him. I said, 1 Corinthians 6 says that we were, we were it has a list of all these sins. Drunkards, um, lack, people with anger, homosexual, sexually immoral, that's heterosexual, sexually immoral. We were all these things and, and God saved us from that and cleansed us and it says such were some of you. You're saved out of that it doesn't mean there's no struggle, but you're saved out of that by God's grace. And I told him, when you say it's not a sin, they can't be saved out of it. And you're actually cutting the kingdom of God off from them. Because he's saying, PJ, you need to love them. And I said, listen, I, I, I agree with you. It is about love. But if the love is cutting them off from the kingdom of God because they don't have a chance to repent because they don't know it's a sin, how are you loving them? He preached a whole sermon at the gay Christian uh, network conference this year in January. I listened to it and he said this. It's not about trying to prove side A or side B. It's about learning how to be like Christ and learning to love well. He says in his sermon, my prayer is that all of us would reevaluate our understanding of scripture and be moved by compassion because compassion is what gives us clarity by the grace of God. We will show the world what Christ looks like not by our theology but by our love. Agree or disagree? Disagree. I agree with love, for sure. How will the world know us? By our love for one another. Yes, 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 love. God is love, 1 John 4. But it's a pattern of sound teaching held in love, right? We will let the world know about the glory of God's grace by our sound teaching held in love and brokenhearted sacrifice, where we will say to them, I will share in the pain, and you can spit in my face, and you can be mad at me as I will love you and tell you the truth with all compassion that I could muster. And you might oppose me, you might shout at me, you might be mad at me, and maybe my delivery is wrong, so I, I need to work on that as well, and I'll reevaluate that, but I need to love you, and part of my loving you is being willing to share in pain for you. When you share in pain to share the gospel with someone, who are you reflecting? Who shared in pain? Who, who took pain to save us? Christ did, right? We're sharing in his sufferings now. We're not salvifically saving them. We're not atoning for their sins. But we are reflecting Christ's sacrificial love in our gospel ministry to the lost. So we hold on. We grab the gospel. Don't let it go. Grab it in love, but grab it and don't let go of sound teaching. Secondly, or the second part, verse 14, you guard the gospel. You grab it and you guard it through the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Um, that's how you guard it, through the Holy Spirit who lives in us. So here's the gospel. It's given to you. The Holy Spirit lives in you, and so you're not to guard it with your own theological acumen, with your master's college education. You're to guard the gospel with what? Or through who? Through, through the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit filling you. Through the word of Christ dwelling in you richly. Through the Holy Spirit and the flesh warring within you, and as you kill sin in your life, and the Holy Spirit takes more control of your life, he bears the fruit of the Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit is love. So then you love people out of the Spirit working in you. So the way you guard the gospel is by gospelizing other people. That's how you guard it, by gospel ministry. 
You are the temple of God. And so you pour your life out for the gospel. And, and to close here, Paul gives us two pictures. Okay, I'll close here with two pictures. He gives us a negative picture and a positive picture. Look at verse 15. 15 is the negative picture. 16 to 18 is the positive picture of, of this of this gospel ministry. Negative picture, verse 15. This you know, all those in Asia have turned away from me, including Phagellus and Hermogenes. They turned away from Paul. In other words, they used to be professing what? Christians. They used to say they were living for the gospel. And what have they done? They've turned away from Paul. May it never be said, I don't think, I mean, in all of Master's College history, I, I don't think this is possible, I mean, I don't think this would be God's will, sovereignly, but may it be said of everyone sitting in this room right now, that none of you, 10, 20, 30 years from now, turn away from the gospel ministry and turn away from Christians. They do. Missionaries turn away. Phagellus and Hermogenes were partners with Paul in the gospel, and they turned away and abandoned him. And not just them, all those in Asia. What a legacy. I mean, you know, if I was Fagellus and Hermogenes, I'm like, man, Paul, why you got to give me a shout out? You just said all those, you know, you know. All those in Asia just deserted me, including Fagellus and Hermogenes. You know, dang, why you got to embarrass me like that? But it's a sad legacy, you know. That, that's the negative picture. They shrunk in shame. What about um, Onesiphorus who, who shares in the pain? Look at the positive picture. What does Anasiphorus do in verse 16? May the Lord grant mercy to this guy. He refreshed Paul and was not ashamed of Paul's what? Chains. How, did, how do we know he wasn't ashamed? Look at verse 17. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, what did he do? He diligently searched for me and found me. So if Paul's in Rome and you want to visit Paul in Rome, what do you do? You take out your iPhone and you text Paul. Where are you at? Right? You check Paul's Twitter feed. Where has he been lately? And then you find him, right? That's what Anasiphorus has to do. Wrong. What, what do you do? How do you find him? You, all you can do is what? Ask people. And when you keep asking around, who are you starting to identify with? With Paul. Hey, you're the guy who keeps asking about Paul. Are you one of the Christians too? Do you believe in that Jewish Messiah who died on a cross and you think he's God? See, for an honest Sephoris to be that bold and not care what people think. Hey, do you know where Paul is? Hey, do you know where Paul is? I'm looking for a guy. He was arrested in Jerusalem. He's brought over here. He's preaching this guy called Jesus. Do you know who he is? Do you know where he is, I mean? When you do that, you're identifying with Paul. And what does that do to Paul's soul? It refreshes him. Because he, there's a partner in the gospel who is not shrinking in shame, but he's actually willing to share in the pain and embarrassment of gospel ministry. So in verse 18, Paul says, may God grant mercy to him on that day. Because he ministered, he's, he sold out for the gospel. He shared in the pain of gospel ministry. Well, I'll give more practical stuff on Wednesday because by God's grace, I've been allowed to come back on Wednesday to be a little bit more practical in, in, in sending you off. But let me close with this story. Who, uh, this is from persecution.com, okay? Persecution.com. It tells a story about, in Laos about a man named Shua. Here's what Shua says, or here's what it says about Shua. In Laos. Since accepting Christ three years ago, I know you guys are putting your Bibles there, but just listen to the story, please. Since accepting Christ three years ago, Shua, a poor Camus Christian, has been beaten many times. New Christian, three years old, three years as a Christian. Been beaten many times. Most recently, someone in his rural vill village poisoned his two pigs, his only property of value. All the people of his village hate him and the other 20 Christians in the village, said a voice of the martyr's partner. 
despite his losses, now before I continue here, despite his losses, here's the question, will he shrink in shame now? He's been beaten, his pigs have been poisoned and killed, people hate him in the village, is he going to shrink in shame? So here it says, despite his losses, Shua continues to share the gospel. Three months after losing his pigs, Shua reported that he had led six people to the Lord, and four other believers had been baptized. Shua's village is an eight-hour journey from the main road, and it's hard for him to fellowship with other believers. Although life in his village is difficult, Shua remains faithful to Christ. He does not, and he will not shrink in shame, but he will share in the pain of gospel ministry, relying on the power of God, and may it be said of us as well. Let's pray. Father, our prayer here is short, and it's straightforward. Give us boldness. Forgive us for our shame and our embarrassment of the gospel with each other. <laughs> We're embarrassed of the gospel with each other sometimes. It's so sad. Forgive us for that, please. Forgive us for our embarrassment with non-Christians. Forgive us for giving into a spirit of fearfulness. Give us, rather, what you've already given to us. Let it overwhelm us, a spirit of power, love, and sound judgment, that we might not shrink in shame, but share in the pain of gospel ministry. This week and until we die. In Jesus' name, amen.